are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Jesus Christ, glory forever. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Descent by St. John Climacus. And uh, as I just mentioned, we're picking up with a new step tonight, step number 14 on gluttony, or the clamorous mistress, the stomach. Uh, very insightful uh, step, as they all are. But, uh, you know, this is one of the basic things that we struggle with, basic appetites as human beings that we struggle with on a day-to-day basis. And the fathers universally hold up order, you know, the ordering of this appetite in particular is essential in the spiritual life. Uh, Gluttony is the first among the capital sins or the eight vices. And uh, if we're able to strengthen our will in regards to this one appetite, that is so rooted in our physical makeup, uh, then we gain strength over the other vices as well. And in particular, other bodily appetites or those tied to bodily appetites, uh, especially lust. And so the often the cure, if you will, or the healing balm that's put forward for the struggle uh, with lustful thoughts would be fasting, uh, humbling the, the body, uh, and in this way, in order to gain strength and another appetite. And so again, we're picking up on page 134. As we are about to speak concerning the stomach, as in everything else, we propose to philosophize against ourselves. For I wonder if anyone has been liberated of this mistress before settling in the grave. And so John starts out with kind of realism here that uh, no matter uh, how experienced we are in the the spiritual life or how long we've been engaged in the spiritual battle, because this appetite is so tied to our physical makeup, that the vigilance that's required of us, even if in many ways we've ordered it, uh, has to remain something uh, that is great, that we always have to watch over uh, our appetite for food and uh, falling into gluttony, uh, because then we fall into a kind of vulnerability in regards to the other vices. Gluttony is hypocrisy of the stomach, for when it is glutted, it complains of scarcity, and when it is loaded and bursting, it cries out that it is hungry. So uh, the the stomach has sort of a hypocrisy about it, that it lies to us, uh, that we need more and more. And uh, 
it's funny. I think even when on a physiological level, it often won't register with our brains that we are full. Uh, and so sometimes we will continue to eat, especially if we're eating quickly, and we'll eat much more than what we really need and only experience after the fact how stuffed we are to the gills. And there are a whole lot of things that sort of play into this too. If we've had a rough day, uh, we can use food as a kind of self-consolation. And then it becomes even something more powerful for us. But it's a hypocrite in, in this way. We can put on the mask of being those who are watchful of what we eat. But in reality, we are guided and directed so often by the demands of our stomach that, uh, in a sense, again, lies to us. That even when we are filled to bursting, it's telling us we are, are you're, we're hungry. And we can, uh, we can eat in depression, we can eat because of anxiety, uh, we can eat to, to self-console, we can even eat aggressively, that if we've had a hard day and people have really gotten on our nerves and we're frustrated, we can sit down and open a bag of chips and on one after another, and it's like a, a gnawing. Uh, if we were to slow down a video of us eating, uh, I remember seeing a study once of micro, what are called micro gestures that people will make that are so quick that you don't realize the emotion or the thought or the feeling behind them. So if somebody on this, uh, I remember seeing, especially in an episode on the OJ Simpson trial, uh, they did this with a number of those who were being cross-examined. And when they slowed down the video, and they were asked a question that made them agitated or angry, even though they responded in what looked like on the surface to be uh, a, a sort of calm way. When they slowed it down, it looked like a dog snarling uh, at, at the lawyer who asked the question. And so if we were to slow down our eating at times, we would see, I think, this kind of micro gesture that we are eating not because of hunger or need, but because we're, we're feeding this kind of aggression. We're gnawing at the food and almost throwing it in. And uh, again, the same way, you know, out of, you know, uh, depression or anxiety, or, you know, we're trying to console ourselves by filling ourselves with something, giving ourselves a sense of that fullness, and especially giving ourselves, and we call it this, comfort food. There are certain, certain foods that are great, grilled cheese and soup, or, you know, think, things such as that, uh, just to all, always sort of hits the spot. And everybody has their own particular thing, uh, but the, the stomach can be uh, a seductive thing in that, in that regard and the way that our thoughts are tied uh, to our sense of hunger. Gluttony is a divisor of seasonings, a source of sweet dishes. You stop one spout and it spurts up elsewhere. You plug this too and you open another. And so, you know, no matter what we seem to do to gain control of this appetite and to order it, uh, especially if we have a love of food or a love of cooking, uh, you know, our minds can naturally move to all the different kinds of recipes that we can create. And we can even sort of convince ourselves, well, this is healthy and things like that, but it usually isn't. It's usually something that's really 
you know, rich and, and satisfying to the taste buds. And so even if it is healthy, on some level, we're, we're eating, uh, again, simply for the pleasure of it. And, you know, I don't want to be uh, strident about this. You know, I think uh, eating a common meal is a for source of communion. And it's, it's uh, uh, for good reason that Christ has given to us to himself as in, in the context of a meal and has given us his body and blood uh, to nourish us uh, because we become companions. We, you know, we break bread together, compounds. Uh, is the, the meaning of the word, to break bread with. And so it's a way that we experience intimacy with each other. And so to gather around the altar and certainly to, to receive our Lord as our nourishment is a way of not only uh, uniting us, binding us to him, but also to each other. And this is why we should do liturgy well and why it should not be rushed and treated in a perfunctory way. It's, you know... Uh, it was, should be a place where we linger with each other and that we prepare ourselves uh, to enter into this meal, knowing what it is and who it is that we receive. In fact, the Holy Eucharist is one of the great means of healing gluttony because it alters the way now that we see eating and we see food because it becomes connected in our mind with this extraordinary gift that God has given to us to heal us and to nourish us to everlasting life. And so our uh, preparing ourselves and receiving the Holy Eucharist well is can be a healing balm for gluttony, as, as is fasting. Fasting focuses on the ordering of the appetite, but I, I think uh, the Holy Eucharist alters our understanding uh, of eating altogether. We always see it now in the context of our hunger and our desire for Christ. So gluttony deludes the eyes of others while appearing to receive in moderation. It intends to devour everything at once. So uh, gluttony can hide in some ways uh, in uh, its appearance, making uh, are, you know, making us think that we are being abstemious, that we are being ordered or making others think that way. And so it's not just the man who sits down with a bucket of chicken wings and a pitcher of beer who falls into gluttony. Uh, it can also be, uh, say, the little old lady who's fastidious about what she eats. It has to be just so, and I'll only eat this. It, this can be a kind, this kind of particularity of wanting things only in the way that I want them can be a kind of gluttony, a disordered approach to eating. And so it's not just stuffing ourselves full, but it's the way that we approach food altogether. And so we can be deluded in our own eyes thinking, well, okay, I don't eat a lot, and, and yet we can be so picky that everything looks disgusting to us, and I'm not going to eat that and uh, push, push it away from us. And uh, in this sense, 
we lose that sense of gratitude that we would have for God for giving us what we need on a daily basis for our, our nourishment. And it also, uh, behind this appearance uh, of being uh, restrained, can be something that is far different. There can be this greater desire uh, to gorge oneself. And I think when people often begin fasting, we can see that part of ourselves, you know, that when we begin to restrain ourselves a little bit, and it comes time to break the fast, watch out. Because, you know, when we sit down to eat, you know, then we feel, oh, my gosh, I have to make up for all that I did not eat for the rest of the day. And so, you know, we have this heaping helping uh, of food for dinner and uh, we we gorge our, our ourselves in that fashion and so again you know we have to be careful of the subtlety of this it seems so simple to us when we think about it because it has to do with food and eating but the uh evil one uh can do all these different things to to draw us along this path where to make it disordered in order then to make us vulnerable uh, on in other areas of our, our spiritual life. Satiety in food is the father of fornication, but affliction of the stomach is the agent of purity. And so here, and we'll pause here for any questions or comments that you might have. Here we see John make this first connection between the struggle with this particular vice and then the vice of lust. Uh, that if we give ourselves over and we do not restrain ourselves, if fasting is not a regular part of our spiritual discipline, then we are always going to be vulnerable then to the temptations of the flesh as a whole. And in particular, our other uh, bodily desire, uh, uh, our sensuality, and uh, so if we are not humbling the body in the, our use of food, uh, then it's also we're, we're feeding the other appetites that are tied to it, and they're going to become stronger for us. And so to afflict the stomach with fasting, to humble it, uh, then also becomes the agent of purity that when we strengthen ourselves in this one regard, humble ourselves, uh, then that appetite begins to weaken or become more restrained. And over the course of time, when we fast, uh, after a period of time, uh, the, the nature of our, our alteration of our diet and the amount that we bring in, our body adjusts to that, and we no longer experience that need for the abundance that we once ate. And uh, similarly, when we've you know, humbled ourselves in this way, the intensity of the uh, appetite or sexual appetites begin to diminish as well. Uh, where we can strengthen our will when they arise, but we can also be more attentive to the thoughts that are often tied to them. So if we eat a big meal, we've probably all noticed that we can become fatigued and tired and sluggish, and it can be, become very difficult to pray. And so overeating then makes it challenging for us to be pray and pray and to watch, be watchful of the thoughts 
that uh, are coming to our minds, but also to be watchful of the temptations that might uh, present themselves to us, whether it's on television or the internet. We just are not as attentive, not as sharp. Uh, what is the, the little saying, the hungry dog runs harder or something like that, runs faster? Uh, that and similarly in the spiritual life, you know, the, the, the soul that is hungry, but hungry in the right way for the Lord and what he alone can provide is going to engage in the spiritual life, is going to run that race, if you will, or, or fight the good fight of faith uh, with greater strength and vigor. But if we're weighed down on a physical level that also affects us emotionally and in regards to our thoughts, we're going to have a very difficult time. And so there's kind of practical wisdom that's tied to this as well, that's rooted in the experience of the fathers, who, as we've talked about before, had fasting as a daily part of their spiritual life. Any comments so far on these first few sayings? Okay. Number six, he who fondles a lion often tames it, but he who coddles the body makes it still wilder. So interesting, you know, John is saying that, you know, if we treat a wild animal with gentleness, we might even be able to tame it, even something like a lion. Uh, but the, the appetites of the body are far more fierce. And so if we coddle the body, it's going to become even wilder. It's going to take greater control of us and regaining that sense of order and control of our appetites can become more difficult over the course of time. The longer that we've gone and being inattentive, to this particular appetite, the, the more challenging it, it can become. And again, on a practical level, I think anyone who watches their diet regularly or some, even those who exercise will tell you that you know, if they let off for a period of time, even a few days, they feel that they've weakened. You know, they, they've stepped out of their routine uh, they've lost something physically and they have to re regain it. And the longer that they've moved away from it, uh, that they have to struggle even harder. And the more we age, the, even the, the, more, the more difficult it becomes for us because we become psychologically too more tied to food again as a, con as a, a constant in our life and as a, a form of consolation. And so it's not so much that uh, as we age that we need more food, but if we've turned to it, you know, throughout the decades as this kind of uh, psychological consolation, then it's going to be hard to let go of that and to trust that we can find uh, that strength through the grace of God and redirecting the mind and the heart to him couple of comments here. First from Anthony. On fasting, I recall sayings from people like St. Paisius to the effect that we live like pagans since we neglect prayer and fasting. I wonder if there is an inverse correlation between a failure to fast and pray and the increase of increased use of unwholesome images. Yes, I would say exactly so. I mean, 
there were places like vomitoriums even where people would eat to the point of uh, regurgitating. You know, they would gorge themselves. It was like an orgy of food. And, uh, and so, uh, yes, you know, when we move away from asceticism, we move away from the things that guard the heart and lead to purity of heart. And uh, I think I've mentioned here the Lineker study, uh, this, this institute, the Lineker Institute, an independent institute that did this study of what took place within the church with the priest scandal and the immersion of all these uh, you know, you know, disorders, including the abuse of children. And uh, you know, one of their conclusions was the breakdown of the ascetic life that here you have men embracing the celibate life. And so needing you know, to order their appetites, including their sexual appetite through the ascetic life and have a deep prayer life, that they're letting go of something that's part and parcel of human existence, that the more majority of the human race embrace in order to serve the church and give themselves over to the church. But if it's not rooted in anything real, in this relationship with Christ, if they are not nourishing themselves upon him through prayer and the sacramental life, but they are not also guarding their appetites and their senses, then the greatest kinds of disorders are going to emerge. And so as you make this connection here with the pagans, you know, where there is no sense of praying or, or if there is, then it's not tied in a very personal way to God and with fasting as well, not seen as something that is essential to the spiritual life. And, uh, and so, you know, if we as a body, as a, as a church, let go of this ascetic discipline, and we minimize it, and we're following more sort of the wisdom of the culture. And we've talked about this before, you know, eat, first it was eating three meals, square meals a day, and breakfast is the most important meal. So you make sure you break your fast the first thing in the morning instead of holding on to it. And then it became eating like smaller meals, but all through the day, like six meals. And so your body is in, in this constant state physiologically of digesting uh, food. So on a physiological level, you know, your focus uh, is directed towards eating and then the digesting of the food that you're eating. Uh, whereas with fasting, there is this humbling of the, of the mind and the body that takes place and this conscious turning to God and deep, deeper prayer during those times where we are seeking to, again, nourish ourselves upon what he alone can provide for us, what he alone can satisfy and the more that we move away from the fasting, the weaker our prayer is going to become. And the more episodic it's going to become or non-existent. And I think the correlation to, to unwholesome images, that's right, you know, it's we, we are unrestrained in our appetites, including our appetites for everything, for information, curiosity, feeding our curiosity, so we, we are gluttons when it comes to the use of our cell phones, the use of the internet. We'll move from 
news article to news article or theological argument to theological argument, you know, story to story. And there's no kind of restraint there that sort of spreads across the whole of our life. And so you can see how fasting would be very important in that way. And this very fundamental level, if we're able to find this order, then we gain strength and clarity about what it is to be a human being, where we are nourished, where we find strength. Not by food alone, you know, are we, you know, satisfied, but only by every word that comes to us from the mouth of God. What is best, the, David says here, David Swiderski, what is the best practice in fasting? I fasted with a Syrian roommate a couple of years, uh, he for, with him for Ramadan and me with for Lent. The hardest was no water all day, which could be dangerous. What was strange, most Muslims gain weight and have huge feasts every night uh, before the sunrise uh, would drink juices to excess. Right, and I've heard that too that uh, will not eat anything all day or drink anything all day, but then gather in the evenings and eat an enormous amount. And I think even that, uh, what's that kind of fasting? Intermittent fasting now that's being done. People are, sort of have that same mentality that you don't eat during this period of the day, but after that you can sort of eat what you want during a certain number of hours. Whereas uh, it's completely inconsistent, I think, with what we've talked about in regards to Christian fasting, which again is unique and distinctive and tied to the person of Christ. Uh, and, and in particular, our hunger for him and what he gives us uh, as the heavenly bridegroom. When the heavenly bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. So he changes the meaning for us. And so there always has to be in our seeking to order this appetite, uh, a distinct uh, connection to Christ himself. Otherwise, it will come to nothing. It might be a discipline that we develop, but it's not necessarily going to, to lead to intimacy. So prayer without fasting is weak. And fasting without prayer, one, one might say, is without meaning. And uh, because it does not draw us into that uh, deeper intimacy with the Lord. Uh, and uh, I think what we see in the fathers was this regular fasting. So they saw this ordering of the appetite as something so important that they did it on a daily basis, uh, that they would pray, especially in a deep way as they approached the end of the fast, because the prayer would become deeper itself. One would experience that deeper hunger and in and through it, the deeper desire for God. And, uh, but they would not extend it beyond that 24 hour period. So as not to weaken the body too much. And so fall into gluttony or to fall into pride that by extending that, that fast beyond that 24 hour period, one might think, well, okay, I have this um, holy or I have this very strong constitution. I could extend it two, three days. And, uh, and this was always held within a, a kind of danger. So regular, uh, not episodic. Uh, uh, we always want it to be measured, you know, avoiding extremes. 
uh, we had a little group. And so if uh, you weren't able to participate in it on, on the love of fasting here, it's a podcast uh, from Adalbert de Vogue, where he talks about this, that we are able to eat a sufficient amount without gorging ourselves at the end of that daily fast uh, with uh, in order to keep us healthy, but also able to do the work that we're, we're, is demanded of us on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, part of us, I think part of the place where we begin is this willingness to experiment with it for ourselves in, again, a, a wise and measured fashion. And Devogue in this book, and I, I won't go into any more depth about it, says, you know, to begin even with one meal, uh, like on a Friday, to let go of that and to try to deepen one's prayer and to do that for a six-month period of time even and try to allow one's prayer to deepen especially towards the end of before one would break that fast that we have to get back uh to the practice of this and if we throw ourselves in it too quickly we're going to fail and then become discouraged or again hurt ourselves physically and so we want to take sort of the long view of fasting that it's going to be a regular part of our spiritual life and so we want to enter into it to make sure that we are making that connection to our prayer life, but that we're not weakening the body too much. And uh, there's a, a great writer, I've mentioned him a number of times here, uh, Michael Casey. He's a Trappist monk from Australia. And in his book, Strangers to the City, he talks about asceticism. And he says that within the religious community in particular, that the asceticism should deepen with the passing of each year, not in the sense that people are laying upon themselves greater and greater disciplines every year, but the way that we enter into those practices is perfected and done with greater and greater love. And so we never want to, again, sort of just get into this perfunctory way of engaging in our spiritual disciplines, but always try to be taking them up with love. So, uh, you know, what is most important is the love and devotion that we bring to our daily prayer disciplines, our daily fasting, and other spiritual disciplines that we embrace. Uh, And uh, I recently came across one uh, Egyptian monk who said, you know, I might say 2,000 Jesus prayers throughout the course of a day, and a mother taking care of her ch- children, and, you know, you know, infants and toddlers might manage to squeeze out 10 in the course uh, of, her, of her day, and yet those 10 are as great as his 2,000, and perhaps even greater if they are said with devotion and love, that we can't compare the two. It's really what is within the heart and the love that we bring to these spiritual practices. And that's the beautiful thing about, you know, Christ having us take this leap forward. You know, it's not only... You know, there were a lot of different reasons for fasting to, you know, to deep, uh, to open oneself up to understand the scriptures in a deeper way, to prepare oneself for battle, for repentance, uh, for sins committed. Uh, But with Christ, we see it now as tied to him and this longing that we experience as human beings for what only God can satisfy for us. 
And that fasting creates a kind of urgent longing within the heart for Christ, especially if we're able to make that conscious connection between the, the, the ascetic practice and the Lord. Okay. Uh, number seven. Uh, the Jew rejoices on Sabbaths and feast days, and a monk who is a glutton on Saturdays and Sundays. He counts beforehand the days till Pascha, and he prepares food for several days in advance. The slave of his belly calculates with what dishes he will celebrate the feast, but the servant of God with what spiritual gifts he may be he may I'm sorry, he may be enriched. So the ascetic, the spiritual warrior, is going to be one who focuses on the things that draw us closer to Christ. And so is going to rejoice at the approach of Lent, of the great fast, uh, not because he's a glutton for punishment, or, uh, but because he sees that through these spiritual disciplines that focus upon Christ deepens and his struggle with the passions in his struggle with the passions he becomes stronger and it becomes a, uh, a stepping stone uh, for us to move past Easter past Pascha with this clearer sense of our identity as sons and daughters of God and how we want to be living our life and the ascetic life fully Whereas those who have this kind of distorted view who are gluttons says, you know, they begin calculating ahead of time. I can't wait till Pascha because then I'll get to eat, you know, this special bread or kabasi or, you know, a whole host of other things that are, are tied to the feast. And again, you know, I don't want to be strident in this. We should feast and celebrate. Uh, but if our, uh, ascetic practices are distorted or lack that depth, then we are going to fall into this pattern where it's just uh, forcing ourselves into a kind of endurance for a period of time. And then we get to rejoice, not over the risen Lord and our rising to new life with him, but the fact that we get to freely eat the things that we love. So it reveals what our hearts love the most. And uh, these feasts can reveal more our love for food than they do our love for Christ or the Blessed Virgin or whatever feast we might be celebrating. If a stranger comes, the slave of the stomach is moved to love entirely from gluttony, and he regards laxity for himself as consolation for his brother. When others are present, he deems it right to allow himself wine, and thinking to hide his virtue, he becomes a slave of passion. So, you know, interesting that, you know, especially thinking from the ascetic's point of view, or a desert monk, that uh, this having a visitor uh, it can become a source of breaking away from one's spiritual discipline. They, one could use the idea of hospitality, of love of one's neighbor, as an excuse then over and over again to break away from one's discipline. So one would begin to rejoice at having company 
And for, you know, a desert monk who's moved in, you know, into a cell uh, in order to have solitude, you could see how powerful that pull would be, that the, sol the struggle with the solitude and the silence could make one attentive to approaching visitors, to welcome them in, and then to offer them, of course, I need to offer them a little something to eat and a little glass of wine. You know, it's, it's only the good and generous and loving thing to do. And so we can even use uh, uh, love as an excuse for gluttony. Eat, eat, manja, manja. You know, it's, it's like we want people to, uh, you know, this is how we think that we show them love. And on some level, that's true, you know, to feed them. But we can lose sight of the greater thing. And we have an example of that within the scriptures itself, you know, with Martha and Mary that uh, Martha wants to offer the Lord hospitality, obviously. She has a deep love for the Lord as well, and yet uh, she loses herself in the task and loses the sight of it being a, a loving self-donation, giving herself over to preparing this meal, to the point that then she becomes angry when Mary wants to nourish herself upon what the Lord is providing to her at that moment upon his word and so becomes so frustrated you know tell her to get up and help me order her so she she begins to command the lord to order him around you know come on you know tell my lazy sister to get off her duff and help me prepare prepare the meal thinking that the lord would say okay mary go ahead go ahead whereas you know he has to rebuke her because she's lost sight of the greater thing that she and one that she had in her midst and uh and become so focused on providing the food the hospitality that uh that she loses sight of the one who could nourish her give her living water but also nourish her upon his word uh anthony made a separate comment here I was talking about Easter grain pie with the last <laughs> within the last 90 minutes. Oops. <laughs> yeah. And Eric writes, if we go over to someone's house during a fasting abstinence period, how should we handle this if they plan food that breaks the discipline? That's good, good question. Um that you know, oftentimes we are hesitant to talk to people about our spiritual disciplines and to talk about them ahead of time with people even and uh david mentioned you know muslims and during ramadan uh, i don't think they would have any hesitancy of saying well this is a holy time for us and we're fasting and so i i can't uh i can't share a meal with you uh at this time and most people would say oh i, I understand that and, you know, that this is a part of their spiritual discipline. And in some ways, uh, we uh, are, are hesitant. And I think it has to do with this. Um, it's almost like we want to hide our faith. We don't want to have that put on display and have people see our, our piety. And uh, because they might question it 
or question us about our practices or make us unfeel, feel uncomfortable about doing them. And this often happens when you know a person goes on vacation and they're visiting family. And uh, I've had this conversation hundreds of times with people, especially with students you know, at the universities. They'll get into a kind of prayer routine and they'll go to daily mass and things like that. And when they go home for the holidays, it's often very difficult because their family wants to see them. They have a schedule that they wanna follow. They wanna go out and visit relatives and do all these things. And then so that whole vacation period time, their whole prayer routine is ruined. They stop praying altogether. If they pray the divine office, if they fast, if they go to daily mass, they, they feel that they can no longer do that, that they have to follow the schedule of others. And so I'll have to talk to them. I'll have to say, you know, you want to prepare yourself ahead of time for this and communicate it even ahead of time. If you're traveling to say, you know, it's essential that I be able to go to a mass on Sunday. And so I, before I come to visit, I have to know if there's a church in the area and that I'm going to have a means of getting there. And most people would say, of course, absolutely. And yet we, we will hold back in doing that. And the same thing can be true with our other spiritual disciplines. Like if we're in the great fast and we've given up meat, and we've given up dairy, uh, we, you know, it could be a great temptation for us to say, well, hospitality here, or gratitude for their generosity, would be, you know, that I go ahead and eat the meat that is set before me. And it becomes harder, I think, for us to bear witness to our specific spiritual disciplines, and the things that are tied to our relationship with Christ. And that they are not only disciplines. In fact, for Christians, I think we should even have a greater freedom in our communication of this because it is so intimately tied to our relationship with Christ that I'm in this time of fasting in order that I might draw closer to Christ. And we could use it even as an opportune moment to talk about our Catholic faith or our spiritual spiritual tradition. And uh and so, you know, my advice would be that we don't wait to the last minute and we don't be fearful of, of bearing witness to our practice of the faith by holding on to it. And my experience is that most people will respect that and not be offended by it. Uh, I see a couple comments here. Let me try to address them. When you give, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. There does seem to be an impetus to hide our discipline and good works to avoid pride. Well, John does mention that here. Let me just take a, another quick look at here. When others are present, he deems it right to allow himself wine, and then thinking to hide this virtue, he becomes a slave of a passion. Now, the passion that he's talking about is that he's being driven more by pride there, you know, of hiding the discipline and letting it go, he doesn't want, you know, to seem prideful in the eyes of another, but in, the, in that sense is prideful. He's holding on to a certain self-esteem, I think, by letting go uh, of the particular discipline. And, uh, and so I, I understand that it can be a delicate thing, uh, but I, I think we've become 
so hesitant in identifying ourselves as Christians, and in particular as Catholics in our culture, that uh, we will let go of things that are essential to our, our very identity. And that this goes not only for the practice of fasting. I think we can be standing around the water cooler and people can be gossiping about the boss or, or the pastor or uh, the homily at mass that day, how bad it was, or, or, you know, or they're, they're talking, you know, they get into a, a gossipy kind of conversation or one that's in, inappropriate in its material. And we can go along with it, we can smile, we can remain participating in this. John has already talked about this in the latter, where we should actively step away from it or try to redirect the attention of the group away from it. And so there are some ways that we are called and that love demands, has a greater demand. Love trumps, love for Christ trumps our self-esteem the image that others have of us. And so if they think us extreme in fasting uh, or, or are upset that we don't accept that meal, well, that has more to do with them than it does uh, with us. Uh, Brad Smith writes, your reference to hospitality as an excuse for gluttony seems the height of fornication as it essentially is essentially to use the other person as a means to our own needs, right? Gluttony is to misuse God's creation for our self-centered ends. Yes, right, absolutely. In fact, uh, when we think of, uh, you know, things such as chastity, uh, we often mistake it for, you know, simply... Uh, oh, this, this moves away from your point a little bit. We'll mistake it and think of it as simply uh, having to do with sexuality, when in reality it has to do with ordered love and how we approach all of God's creation and that we can use God and how he has made us and the things that he's given us simply to satisfy our own baser needs and desires rather than to engage and embrace those realities in the way that God intends and not to lose sight of the other, of the person. And so what you're saying here resonates with how I've been thinking about this recently too, that you know it's misusing that which is God-given in this inappropriate way. And we can use, we can objectify uh, another person, use them for our self-centered needs in the same way that we do with our eating. And that's why these two are so tightly linked together in the father's mind. Uh, it's Ambrose says, so we can't win. Lots of laugh. <laughs> laugh. That's right. Not in this world, buddy. No winning in this world. It's in the next and in the eyes of God. Uh, C. Moran writes, a few of my casual Catholic friends think that no meat on Friday has been done away with after the reforms, not even knowing that some other penance is required. Yes, you know, I think that's been unfortunate. Uh, you know, when already our sense of the ascetic life and disciplining ourselves in various ways both in our prayer, but also in the ways that we're talking about here, has been so diminished over time 
that then to say, all right, we're not going to meet on Friday as long as we replace it with another penance. Well, if nobody else is embracing any other penitential practices, what does that mean? And are they going to remember to do that? And or have we just removed another discipline that has a particular meaning for them? Have we just stripped you know, stripped down the Catholic faith even more and the spiritual practices even more? And we've already done that with the practice of fasting. Uh, it, you know, even as I entered into the church, it seemed amusing to me that, you know, the fasting on, you know, uh, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday was described as two smaller meals and one normal meal. It's like, you know, holy cow, you know, what, what does that mean? You know, because you're, you're just eating regularly then, two modest meals and one regular meal. And it's, it's not fasting. The moment we eat, we are breaking the fast. That's why breakfast is called breakfast. You're breaking the fast of the night you know, or since you last ate. And, uh, and so even, you know, with the practice of abstaining from certain foods, uh, you know, the, the great fast and the abstinence adds this other level to it, I find, in the Eastern churches. But we still need to foster this practice of regular fasting, where we do not eat. And uh, because even if you give up meat and dairy, you can still find quite a few things uh, to fill yourself. And I think we, we need to have these periods where we step away from food altogether, that we allow ourselves to experience that hunger on this deep level. And in order to, in order that that fasting might bear the greatest fruit for us, not only in the struggle with our appetite, other appetites, but with the deepening of our prayer. Uh, Helena writes, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And when we commune with him within, his nourishment exceeds any other. Absolutely. And I, I think this is why he teaches about fasting in the way that he does. And, and again, why he's given to himself to us in the Holy Eucharist and the way that he has, that we might come to see that with a greater clarity. And, uh, uh, you know, man does not live by bread alone. And also, you know, our way of approaching food and the things of this world is so often rooted in the fact that we live in a fallen world. And so before Christ, it is by the sweat of your brow, you will, you know, earn your living. You will provide for yourself. The part of the, the effects of our sin and what it brings to us is the hardship of work. But in a sense that we are you know, have to, we become a slave to it, shackled to it, and shackled to our own appetites and desires and the need to satisfy them. Whereas what we find in Christ is that we are, exactly what you describe here, Elena, that, uh, that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God that what we are given in and through Christ is greater than anything that we could receive through this world. And so we need human sustenance as human beings, but we do not need it 
in the measure that we imagine. And in fact, we need to free ourselves from our over-focus on it in order that we can be more attentive to the word of God as he speaks to us and to our hearts and that we might be faithful to his will. And the whole purpose of that temptation of Christ is to draw him away from the will of the Father. You know, set aside that human weakness, that poverty, set aside creation and the way that God has made it. Uh, and that hunger that you are experiencing after fasting 40, 40 day, days in the desert, turn the stones into bread. You know, uh, place your own view of creation above that of God, elevate the satisfying of that bodily hunger more than being faithful to him and avoiding temptation. Great questions. Let's see, there's another one here from, uh-oh, Ren Witter. I am going to someone's house for dinner tomorrow and they already know I'm a vegetarian. So I was going to just go and eat what was there, but I literally just texted them to say, I can't have eggs or cheese. It makes me feel strangely anxious. I also told them to blame Father David. <laughs> That's all right. You could, you could, I'm fine with that. You know, I, I get blamed for enough things. And, uh, but uh, that's, you know, again, that's okay to say, you know, we, I just had a discussion, if it comes up, to say we had a discussion about this, that, you know, this is part and parcel of my identity. You know, it's not, you know, I want to eat with you and I will eat what I can. And I even let you know ahead of time where I am in my spiritual life. I'm sharing with you as a friend, you know, this intimate part of who I am and most important part of who I am, my spiritual identity. So I share with you my spiritual practices. And if a person loves you and is a friend, they're not only going to respect that, but they're really going to try to respond fully to it. So it's not to make you uncomfortable in holding fast to it. So come over here because I have absolutely nothing in my refrigerator most of the time. <laughs> uh, Angela writes, can we replace fasting with good works? This was my experience years ago when I was aspirant in a religious community. Uh, I would say no in the sense of replacing it. I think we should be focused upon doing both things and both have their place within the Christian life that we are to love others, we are to be attentive to their needs, that this self-donation, this gift of self to others is, again, part and parcel of our Christian life, a part of the fabric of our identity. But to place it on the same level as fasting or equate it with fasting, I, I think is misguided. That you, the three legs of the stool, if you will, as St. Peter Chrysologus describes it, are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, which would be the good works for others. And the three are tied together. You know, our prayer, our fasting leads to deeper prayer, but also frees up resources that we aren't using uh, in order to provide for ourselves more that we then can give alms to those who need it, to the poor. And uh, again, you know, I, I think there's this temptation and uh, that comes to us and to the church as a whole 
to minimize fasting. You know, so replace it with another discipline, another penance, or 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 you know, minimize it so as not to overtax people. Two small meals, one main meal, uh, and uh, we, you know, it's as though we don't want anyone to have to struggle with these realities, and that we're loving them and telling them to do that, and it's just the opposite. The whole wisdom of the spiritual tradition says we have to enter into the spiritual battle. And on this fundamental level, the evil one is relentless. As we go through the rest of this text, we'll see how at every turn that he seeks to undermine the practice because of its importance. And even does it with Christ, you know, as he emerges from his fasting, you know, that, you know, Immediately fill it, fill that emptiness, but fill it with the use of your divine divine power. And so we have to be very cautious even about this, uh, about things that are presented to us as virtues, which certainly, uh, you know, good works are. Uh, so it's, let me take a look at some of the, you can't beat your body and make it a slave by doing good works, you, right? And you should not make others suffer because of our sacrifices, right? Uh, we should not make others suffer because of our sacrifices. Well, I, I'd have to know exactly what you mean and how we would do that. Maybe you could flesh that out a little bit for me. And then Rebecca writes, a thought that the recommendation, recommendation for a fast day or two small meals or a large one, is that what you mean? Yes, that I think we've moved so far away from the wisdom of the church, of the spiritual tradition, that we're so cut off and removed from the spiritual tradition as a whole, that we've minimized uh, all of our spiritual practices. Think about it. I mean, in Catholicism, we've become the church of minimalism. You know, we do it with our liturgy. We do it with the ascetic life as a whole. Do as little as possible. Priests, don't you preach more than, you know, three to five minutes because, you know, you're going to overtax your congregation and they're going to hate you and not want to come back to church. And don't make sure that liturgy does not go over an hour. Because, you know, again, it's overtaxing and people are not able to handle it. Well, if this is what we love and this is what nourishes us and this is where we find life, if this is not being communicated and we have to fall into this minimalism to keep people, then we're failing. We're failing miserable and communicating really even more, more importantly, the heart of the gospel that it is love for God, the desire to do his will, that leads us to, to take up all of these things. And if we're minimalizing them, it's because we've lost sight of something essential in our practice of the faith. I'll get off my soapbox. Okay, Carol, I paper. When I have to prepare a meal for someone who is wheat-free, meat-free, dairy-free, makes me not want to host them. Okay, I see. They don't ha have allergies to sacrificing these things. That makes me suffer. Uh, well, don't invite them to dinner. <laughs> I mean, 
we don't have to have people over to dinner. And if having them over to dinner causes us frustration or anger and uh, let them have us over for dinner. And if there are so many needs there, I think in a spirit of generosity, we would seek to respond to real physical needs and try to provide things for people who have, you know, real allergies or real allergies or allergies to particular foods that, you know, as hosts, we would do that. But if, if, it's, if it's to a point where we feel that we're unable to do it without experiencing enormous frustration, uh, you know, then it's, our hosting at that point breaks down. So that's why I never invite anybody over because <laughs> want soup and crackers, I have some of that and almond milk. <laughs> few dog biscuits on the side so uh let's see we are unfortunately at 8 30 i thought we would get a little bit further than that but I, I don't want to rush through this one because we can see all the questions that are arising and i think they are important in our day because precisely because gluttony and fasting have been minimalized in their importance and we've it's gotten out of focus. Uh, we've, you know, things have gotten out of focus for us where we can see the importance uh, of dealing with these realities. And so I want these kind of questions to come up uh, because they're all things I think that can pull us away from an essential practice. Uh, let's see. And one final comment here, Ambrose quotes from the USCCB. The focus seems to be about internalizing and owning our asceticism as Christian adults, rather than having to spoon, spoon feed it to us in a one size fits all approach. But the important part of the message seems to have been lost on many. That's right. I think that's a good point. I think, you know, what the call of the council was, was resource mind, you know, to go back to the sources of our tradition that form form our understanding of why it is that we fast. Unfortunately, that never took place. And catechesis broke down. And again, this profound separation from the spiritual tradition. So that I think when people, you know, and to, to read this in the most generous way, when people hear that, well, you don't need to maintain the, the abstinence from meat on Friday, uh, you know, they're not, <clears throat> not to blame for that, I think, in some ways, uh, because there hasn't been anything else that's been taught to them. You know, certainly not the importance of fasting or maybe what other penitential practices they might put up or, or embrace. And a lot of things are written and talked about without substance or without any practical aspect to them. And again, this is what's beautiful about reading the fathers, the focus on praxis. How do we exercise our faith? How do we live our faith from a day-to-day -day basis in order that we can embrace the grace of God and respond to it as fully as possible and to fulfill the will of God, not our own will. And the moment that we separate ourselves from that living tradition and the living wisdom that comes to us uh, from the saints throughout the ages, then very quickly our faith is going to cool 
and we're going to move to this minimalism that we see. Okay, so when we stop there uh, for tonight, boy, the hours seem to go by very quickly, and uh, and we'll pick up next week. So I want to stop with the as always with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.